Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. For this week's episode, I have with me Steve Jaggy. Now, Steve is a producer. He owns the Steve Jaggy Company. He is a writer. He is a director. He's originally from Canada and he's come to work in Australia and has done such notable projects here like Riptide, Swimming for Gold. He is the showrunner for the Dive Club series on Netflix and Channel 10. He's also the writer-director of the film Chocolate Oyster, which did so incredibly well at Sydney. Film Festival a few years ago. I really enjoyed talking to Steve because I think this episode really drives home the business side of our industry. I know as actors and as filmmakers, we obviously often talk a lot about the reasoning behind our work, the emotional mindset behind our work, the techniques that we're using in that sense, which is so important. But our industry is also a business and I think um, talking to a producer that is as experienced as Steve was so interesting and yeah, it's just, it kind of opens our eyes up to um, why content is being made in certain ways. Also having like a five-year plan for his production company and releasing certain things at certain times and the reason behind that, that is really interesting and important to know as an actor as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we jump into the episode, I would also like to let you guys know that my short film, Nobody Likes Camping, is now out on YouTube. We released it recently at the start of February, and I'm so happy that it is finally out. It's a short film that I wrote, co-produced, and starred in. It's a comedy. It's directed by Western Sydney filmmaker Matt Vella, and it also stars Neil Kolhatka, who is a renowned stand-up comedian and social media content creator. So I'm going to link it down below in the show notes with everything else from this episode, but I would very much appreciate um, if you would go and check it out. But without further ado, let's jump in. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing? In um, You're based in Brisbane. So how is Brisbane on this very lovely Friday morning? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Brisbane is, it's actually a little overcast, um, but you know, we have had pretty much six months of nearly perfect weather. So not really complaining and, and hopefully actually the temperature is gonna start dropping sometime soon because it's been a very hot summer. Yes, and you've been filming kind of a bit all over Queensland at the moment. And I can imagine that it has been a bit sweaty on set for you for the last little while. Oh yeah, we um, we've been very fortunate to be incredibly busy over the last six months. But uh, a lot of the stuff we've been shooting has been up uh, in tropical, far north Queensland. So a lot of stuff in Cairns and also up in Port Douglas. Uh, so that's uh, that's pretty hot up there. Yes, it is, <laughs> especially this time of year. Like the summer months is just like no, no, thank you. <laughs> Um, so you are a producer, you also have your own production company and you do some writing and directing as well. Um, and you're, so you're originally from Canada. I'm really interested to know, um, what was the reasoning for coming over to Australia to study 
film um, because, you know, Canada has such an amazing um, film industry, especially now in kind of the um, later years of streaming services. It's really boomed over there, especially in Vancouver. So originally, um, what kind of sparked your interest in the Australian industry? Um, so relatively complex uh, answer. Um, I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it so don't bore your listeners. But mm-hmm. effectively, um, my I, I did come to Australia when I was in my late teens uh, and did my second degree in Brisbane um, as well. Um, that was due to my parents moving a lot. And um, um, my father was in the oil and gas industry. And um, um, so we moved a lot as a child. Um, so that, you know, was my first introduction to Australia. And then... I um, was back in Canada and I actually went to the UK and worked in the UK for eight or nine years in London and um, which is lovely, you know, um, great culturally over there, but the weather was starting to get me down and uh, I kind of thought, well, this is back maybe about 10 years ago. Um, I thought I'd go back to Australia and kind of, you know, um, see Australia, you know, kind of um, had to offer on a wider level because I really only, only knew Sydney and Brisbane. So I, I came, after, my plan was after London to go to LA and work, to be honest with you. And I thought I'd just go to Australia for a year or two because um, I could. And uh, so I came over, you know, bought a four by four. My plan was to just circumnavigate Australia, you know, as somebody in my mid twenties uh, and then go to LA. And then when I was over here, just fell back in love with the country and, um, you know, kind of realized that there were a lot of opportunities from a filmmaking perspective and got on a film as soon as I got over here. And then some other opportunities came up and decided to start my own small little company with a business partner, um, Liz Shute, um at the time. And we set up a small production company and then, you know, we're able, what, what I kind of realized is that Australia, there are a, a whole host of challenges. However, Australia is a great country to come back to. I think it's very difficult to start your career in Australia, but having spent a decade in London and understanding how film works and working in film financing and sales, coming, coming back to Australia, it, nowhere on earth could you roll out of bed and just have half your film financed. Of course, that's all changing in four months time at the offset changes, that's another thing. But, but you know, for the last decade, Australian filmmakers have been very lucky in that there was this unique opportunity where you didn't, you know, half your finance was already there. So you certainly didn't have that in Los Angeles or anywhere else in the US or the UK, even Canada that has a lot of incentives. They're much more difficult how they work. You know, you can't stack them. The rules around them are, are, are you have to grind credits. It's, it's a very complex uh, situation that is very hard for individual producers to do. Um, and what Australia has, I think that's unique is uh, a system that does allow um, opportunity, there's an opportunity to kind of start as a single practitioner and grow a company quite quickly here. Mm, that's really interesting. Roundabout answer. Well, <laughs> it, not so much, <laughs> but I was going to say, I think literally every Canadian that I've ever spoken to that's lived in Australia will be like, my dream is to buy a four by four and do the circuit of Australia. Every single one of them. <laughs> Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is I, I haven't done that. I have the four by four. I don't have time. However, pre COVID, every time I go back to Canada, I actually kind of got this bucket list of what to see in Canada. And every time I go back, I spend two weeks driving around and getting to know that country really well. So I've, I've seen more of Canada since living in Australia. So no doubt 
you know, as and when, if I ever moved on from Australia and, and moved to LA or Vancouver or whatnot, I probably would then come back for holidays and actually get a chance to see the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Where uh, Whereabouts in Canada were you originally from? Uh, Calgary. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I mean, very cold, <laughs> but beautiful nonetheless. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think that um, as an actor, I definitely, it's interesting to hear a producer's perspective on the Australian film industry and especially an international um, producer because I think a lot of actors, um, I'm constantly hearing like there's no work in Australia, like Australia is not good for um, having a career in the industry. However, you know, when I look at um, all of your credits and the work that you've done, it kind of speaks the opposite to that. And so... You know, obviously, like you're on the crew end of um, production and stuff like that. So it's very different to being an actor and, you know, having to go through the casting process and whatnot. But um, with your films, um, I guess like obviously you've had international success because a few of them have been picked up by Netflix and whatnot as well. um, And they've been distributed. So we're like... Um, I guess, what would your advice be in terms of that mindset for people in the industry who are kind of thinking along the lines of, oh, you know, the Australian industry is not great, blah, blah, blah. Like what, do you often hear that as well? Oh, all the time. And I think, um, I mean, the honest truth is the industry is not good for anyone anywhere. And, you know, I have lots of friends in Los Angeles, uh, many who are vastly more successful than than I um, am. And, um, you know, they're constantly on, you know, anti-anxiety medication and, you know, having panic attacks and uh, it's a high stress industry. And, you know, I would first never recommend it to anyone. Um, of course, nobody ever listens to me. No. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there is obviously some kind of magical, you know, there's a magic kind of allure um, to doing this. And I, I, I wouldn't give this up and do a de- desk job, even though I appreciate it. It's a crazy industry to be in. Um, I, I don't know what it's like to be an actor. I couldn't imagine how difficult that is. Um, certainly my experience has been with this business. You, you have to, as a producer and filmmaker, I realized I have to make my own work. And um, the days of just walking into somewhere, and this is as a, with my producing hat on, I'm, you know, but I'm sure there's a lot of kind of similarities with acting. The days of just walking in, somebody giving you something are long since over. There is, you know, if you look in Australia, it's the same in LA, it's the same in London, same in Vancouver. There is a, there is a kind of 10% of the industry who are kind of, you know, they, they're in their fifties and sixties, they've been around forever. They get, they get the majority of the opportunities and then their children get the majority of the opportunities. Then the next level of entrance are people that have trust funds or have unlimited kind of family money and they don't have to actually get paid. And then you've got 80%, the rest of us, um, you know, who, have to make a dime and have to pay rent. And when you're, you're, and that's, that's what makes this business so difficult is, and we wrestle with this every day here at, you know, at my business, you want to um, be first and foremost, nobody's in this industry um, because they're driven by money. If you're, if you were driven solely by money, you'd be building houses or you know, doing whatever. So, um, you know, really, you know, even for myself as a producer, you know, I, money is not the number one thing. It's, it's, you know, we're driven by a passion for making content and telling stories. Um, but 
as soon as you've been in the industry for a year or two, you kind of realize that money actually is very important. <laughs> and that I think is where everybody comes a cropper. And, and that it is, yeah, it is difficult here. And I, I no doubt, you know, I, you know, I think what works really well for me and my recommendation always is, is regardless of what you do in the industry, as soon as you're starting out, go and work overseas. Because I think Australia, again, has worked, I've been able to be quite successful here in Australia. But that's because I had 10 years experience overseas and came here and knew how the game worked. Uh, you know, not necessarily in Australia, but I knew how it worked overseas and I was able to use that to my advantage. Um, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, for actors, there, of course, there's a plethora of roles going all the time in Vancouver and LA and London. And there just will never be in Australia because the critical mass doesn't exist here. Doesn't mean you can't be successful here, but, but for anyone starting out, um, my recommendation has been for years and I continue to still make this recommendation. Once COVID is over, go to Vancouver. Uh, going to LA is super hard and super competitive. Vancouver is still competitive, but a bit less competitive. But if you look at the amount of TV that's made in Vancouver, it's staggering. And so there's a lot of, you know, as an Australian, there's a lot of opportunities and there's a bit of a simpatico between Australians and Canes as well, a bit more so than perhaps going to America. I know we speak the same language, but there's a lot of kind of philosophical differences. So I, I would, you know, my heartfelt advice would always be, you know, try your luck in Vancouver for a few years, get some credits and then come back to Australia when you have some established credits. Because, you know, there's a lot of content being made in Australia, but again, the critical mass isn't there. So there's not the incentive or the need to try new people and discover new talent. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that advice. I've been to Vancouver twice um, as a recreational holiday, um, nothing to do with work. And I yeah, I agree. Um, I've always said, you know, if I was going to move overseas for my acting work, it would be Vancouver because the similarities in the day to day of the people is very similar to Australian mentality. Um, whereas in LA, I think as we know, it's the industry there is very like very brutal and very quite different mentality just in like person to person um compared to Australians and you're right like when I was there um I was literally walking down like the street in the main area of Vancouver and saw like three film sets and you're just going like there's such an enormous amount of content being made there because it's on the same time zone as LA. So time differences aren't a big thing. And also because they can dress the sets to look so American as well. It's a little bit easier. Um, I guess like um, a lot of um, people kind of feel when they do make that move overseas and something that I really think that you said is important to note is that you can go overseas and do some work and then bring that experience back. I think a lot of people get stuck in the mindset of I'm moving overseas permanently and I need to make it there. And so if they do come back, they view that kind of moving back as a, oh, I failed overseas and so I'm coming back here to start again, which is just, you know, I don't think it's a helpful mindset to have. I think if you're going to work in this industry, you need to realize it's a worldwide thing and you're always kind of going to be moving around. You can't set yourself down in one place unless you want to work on home and away for the rest of your life. I think, you know, going back to your first question, just asking about, you know, how I ended up in Australia and talking about, you know, a, a big asset that I have, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not 
smarter or any more talented than anybody else, you know, probably less so, quite frankly. Um, what has been um, of great benefit for me in my life and professionally is that as a child, I did move around a lot with my parents um, because of their work. So I lived in the UK, I lived in Switzerland, I lived in Norway, lived in Australia, um, did live in the US for a bit. So, it, it, you know, it is such an international industry. And I, I can't tell you, I've, I've, I have had the opportunity to work with some fantastic filmmakers here in Australia who, to be frank, their careers would, should have been, should be much, they should be much more, you know, along the kind of career track than where they are, but they don't want to leave home. And I think, you know, one thing I've really noticed, and Canadians suffer from the same thing, by the way, but one thing I've really noticed is that um, what Americans do have that's very hard to compete with, they're no more skilled than we are, but they have drive and inertia. And that comes from a few different places. And some of them, you know, one of the big things that they have, which we absolutely don't want, but, you know, if you're in LA and you're in the film game and you don't get your next job, you literally don't have health insurance. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, so they have artificially created this, uh, you know, this kind of life situation, which in Australia in particular, but also in Canada, we're the diametric opposite end of it, where the spectrum where, you know, in Australia or Canada, if you, if you don't have work, you can go on the dole and you can, you know, your health, you never have to worry about not having health care, um, which is the way it should be. Don't get me wrong. But in, in the US, you don't have that. And so if they're not working, they're not getting health care and they're not, you know, they're out on the street. So it just creates an atmosphere. Yes, everybody's on edge and there's a huge amount of tension, which is not why it's not so great to be there. But you also have this atmosphere where everyone's fighting and struggling and you have all these super high achievers because they literally have to achieve. And I've definitely would say to you, you know, I, I really see in Australia a lot, not so much with the actors, but definitely with filmmakers, a lot of complacency. People make a film, it's a decent film, and there's no drive to get to the next level. There's no hustle. There's no like move, 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 move. And that's a real edge that Americans have. And I mean, Canadians are just as bad as Australians in that factor. We have it so easy in life that we, you know, we, we make a film and then, and then rest on our laurels for forever. And um, that, that I think is really a cultural advantage that Americans have. And that, that I think is something that um, you only learn that if you travel and you spend some time there uh, just to see, you know, their mindsets. And, and, you know, again, I would, I would never live in Los Angeles for the exact reason. I couldn't imagine living somewhere where I was scared that I couldn't go to hospital if something went wrong. But, um, but, but I do understand why that's developed and, and how that has helped, you know, that country produce so many great artists and entrepreneurs and high performers is because they're in this pressure cooker all the time. Yeah, it sounds intense um, <laughs> because it is intense. It's funny. It, it also, I think, um, you know, in the age of creating your own work, which I would say is kind of a necessity at, like in this industry, I think in the Australian industry, you do have, I constantly come across people that are like, oh yeah, I have this idea for a script and then the next time I'll see them, yeah, you know, I didn't, you know, I still have that idea. I'm still thinking about it, you know, um, which is fine. There are a lot of factors that come into why you're not making something currently or why you haven't put pen to paper with that certain script idea. Um, however, I think it really separates the creatives that are actually going to succeed in the industry with the people who might work for a little bit because I think the Australian industry does kind of allow for that 
I don't want to say slackness, but it kind of is slackness, you know? Like if I just really feel like you really do have to be on the ball. And as you say, when you make a film, what are you going to do next? And like, yes, that's an exhausting kind of mentality, but I guess you have to find the joy in that mentality to be like, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to work hard at it. Also take time for you, but you know. A couple of things to unpack there. I mean, one is... Um, which is again, been a big learning curve for, for me is the notion that every film you do has to be special versus this is a job. That is mm. something that's very hard for people to learn. And, and we can certainly return to that in a second. And the other one is, you know, we're so fortunate here in Australia to have actually so much support, you know, from the government, both federally and on a state level. And I know there's lots of gripes about, you know, uh, uh, Screen Australia and state agencies, but, you know, I, I won't get into that because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky to be frank to even get a dime, you know, whereas again, Americans don't get anything. So um, I think that there is definitely a source, a sense of entitlement in Australia. And a lot of people, you know, again, I'm just really focusing on filmmakers rather than kind of actors, but a lot of filmmakers feel that they're in, it's their right to make a movie or they're entitled to make a movie or, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 and, and that isn't the case. You know, it's absolutely not the case. Nobody has a right to make a movie. Nobody has a right to be an actor. You have to fight for it, you know, and global competition is very, very fierce. And um, uh, uh, coming back to this, this issue about whether every movie has to be perfect, that it's something I had to learn the hard way. And you, you, again, if you work with a lot of American companies, you quickly learn, you know, if you even, um, if you look at even some of the high performing, high octane American companies that make the AAA content, if you really pull away their company structure, they all, they all, and everyone in America is in the business of making, you know, kind of the lower budget, it used to be TV movies, but now the SWOD movies, the rom-coms or the, um, horror movies, you know, or the, you know, basically the films that can come in at a reasonable price are not um, execution dependent and can be high turnover, like volume films, because it's, it's completely a volume business. And there's no company, uh, unless they're trust fund babies, there's no kind of working company that I'm aware of that just swans around and makes one Oscar winning film every two years. If you, if you look at those companies, there are a couple that are, there are trust fund, you know, kind of baby companies, take those out of the equation. All the other companies will have another division that is churning out content on a you know kind of monthly basis. That's how they pay their bills. And once you come to realize that, you, you know, and this comes back to this thing about it's a job. Once you realize that you've got to you know make money, what I what I see in Australia is most people say, okay, well, no, I'm going to make every, I'm only going to make a couple of films that are going to be perfect. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a day job, or I'm going to work for the government, I'm going to work for afters in between. And, and then their careers stall and then, you know, they're getting ready to get frustrated and annoyed with the government. And, and I, I think that's completely the wrong mentality. If you're going to have a go at this, regardless of whether you're a practitioner or an actor or whatever, throw yourself in 110% and try and get rid of that day job. But what you have to do is you're going to have to be involved with as many products as, po uh, projects as possible. And all those projects can't be Oscar winners. You know, you're going to have to be involved in, in schlock or pulp films or, you know, in our case, we, we, do a lot of romance movies and teen movies, that sort of stuff. And, you know, we try to keep the quality high, but we, we do a lot of that's genre content. And we do that genre content because it can pay the bills really easy and we can turn it around quickly. And that allows us to then dabble and develop and try and make that AAA content as and when we have the time. And I think it's, that's a mentality that again, Americans really have because they don't have the fallbacks. But here we have so many fallbacks that there's no incentive to really jump in the deep end and sink or swim. Mm. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I do, yeah, I do come across a lot of um, filmmakers that are, you know, putting years into a short film. And that's fine, you know, but I just, it's it's just not making the most of the time that you have in this career and your energy. Um, so I think people are very afraid to kind of make bad content and have it out there. But mind you, I think that it's important, like, so what? <laughs> you know, like, I think it's just important as a personal exercise as well to have, to make something and go, well, it's not my best. Oh, well, put it out there, you know? You know, I've said, what I, I've learned, you know, is that when I am in meetings and whatnot, nobody can even remember the second, like, if I look at my catalog of work, I'm lucky if people even know the last thing I made. I've probably been involved in 20 odd films now. And, you know, some of them are shit movies and some of them are great movies and lots of them are average movies. And no, nobody knows the shit movies and nobody cares. What people do care is that my company makes, you know, three to four movies a year. We make them on budget and on time and they're delivered. And then, you know, so we're reliable. People want reliability. They want accountability. Uh, yes, they, you know, they do. People want quality. You don't want to turn out garbage. But at the same token, um, you know, people want, you know, they want market driven content and they want it on time and on budget. And um, that, you know, was a big, that was a huge learning curve. And I, that I think where that becomes challenging for practitioners across the board is um, because we're in such a system where we're, it's so, we're so reliant on government finance. You know, you, if you do go in that government finance route, which, you know, people that know my company would know, we, we very rarely do that. If you are going through the route of going to Screen Australia and Screen New South Wales or Film Pick or whatever, you're, you do have to be the top 1%. It has to be perfect to get that. And then you end up in this track where you're spending four or five or six years, like you say, just making a short film. Now, in those four or five or six years, you could have worked on, you know, a film a year or even more if you worked on other people's content as well. And um, you could have actually become a great practitioner by honing your skills. And um, that pathway to excellence of working um, forever and spending a, a decade of your life, that works for one in a million people. And we can all name those people. You know, there, there are a couple of Australian practitioners who, you know, but, but you also have to look at, again, if you peel back the onion, you know, you look at, they probably have famous family in the industry or they had a trust fund or whatever. And, 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 and that's a one in a million. And I guess I had to ask myself and your listeners have to ask yourselves, like, are you one in a million? I know your mom says you are, but are you really <laughs> one in a million? Because most of us aren't one in a million. Do you know what I mean? And so if you're going to be that one in a million filmmaker that can go out and make crossbow and then go and make, you know, Snowtown or whatever, and then all of a sudden have this huge career. Great. That's amazing. But that opportunity only exists for one person every five years. And what, there are 30 odd million people in this country and any given time, 100,000 people trying to get into the film industry. Well, you know, sorry, one of you is gonna make it. The other 99, 999, you know, aren't. So what do you do? Do you just give up or do you actually try to path this realistic? Mm. I f find like um, with the films that your company makes, uh, there's this really interesting balance of what you're saying like there is so much marketability in the films and like it's a lot of rom-coms a lot of films that um, cater to younger audiences but a lot of them are female driven which is obviously taking on a really interesting thing that's happened in the industry with um, I guess well diversity is not to do with gender but um, also like female driven content is becoming um, very popular in the industry because you know it hasn't it hasn't really been around before and so I guess it's like this nice balance of you want something that's marketable but you actually want to kind of cater to the trends 
in the industry as well, which I guess comes back to marketability. But yeah, um, but I mean, you've written films as well and your film Chocolate Oyster, um, which went to Sydney Film Festival, like you wrote that as well and you had a lot of um, improvising in it with the actors. Um, so, and that film kind of feels a bit more of like, a, was that a film that you were like, this is what I want to make rather than, you know, oh, I'm looking for something which I can churn out? Sure. Great question. I mean, um, yeah. And let me, you know, just before we focus on Chocolate Oyster for a second, looking at our catalog of work, you know, I would say certainly as a brand and particularly in the last five or six years, you know, post Riptide, I'm very happy and very proud of all the films we've made. You know, I, I think if you look at our rom-coms and or our teen movies, you know, and, and stack them up against the, comp- the, the competing titles out of the U.S. in the same budget range, I feel confident that ours will always be on top. You know, we always try to make superior content for the audience. I think what we're doing though is we're looking at that landscape and we're saying, what we're saying as a business is those AAA titles that win Oscars and win BAFTAs and whatever, the competition for that is fierce. The competition for that audience, which is predominantly the high-end theatrical educated audience over 45, that is that, that landscape is oversaturated and there are a lot of great people doing it and we can't compete. I mean, look at Bruna Papandrea, great success over the last couple of years since she's been back to Australia, but no chance in hell can we compete. You know, she's got all her contacts from LA. She's got some of the best people in the world working for her. So our, our thing is rather than even trying to compete, we're looking at it laterally and we're looking at the landscape and saying, well, you know, in Australia, I think 40% of the population has Netflix, right? So everybody in Australia effectively is watching Netflix far more than any other, you know, cinema or, or, or broadcast television. But the vast majority of them are not watching highbrow content. They're watching other types of content. So what we, we look to identify what those other niches are, and then we try to make the best content for that niche. And so, you know, if you're looking at it with the if you're looking at it with the rose tinted glasses or the kind of the, the, the kind of shuttered view of only looking at highbrow content, of course, it doesn't necessarily resonate with you. And it's a bit like, meh, what is this? But if you think of Joe Public and our audiences, you know, with our rom-coms, we know our audience very well. It's women 35 plus who a lot of them are stay-at-home mothers. You know, a vast majority of the audience probably doesn't have a college education, but they know what they want and they know quality when they see it. Um, you know, and so, and it's the same with our tween films, you know, those are for girls aged eight to 12, you know, who don't, they, they're, they want something a bit more sophisticated in Disney channel, but they can't really watch, you know, 13 reasons why or that sort of stuff. So the, we go for very particular niches and we aim to be the best at that. Mm. Um, kind of coming back to, 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 I just want to explain that to say, no, we're not of course. Yeah, yeah. turning our fault. We are very much targeting what we're doing. Um, it's just. Again, you have to look at it, and that's a learning curve as well. You have to look at our content through the eyes of the audience rather than looking at it critically as if you are comparing it to Taxi Driver or to The Dry, because you can't, because our audience has never seen those movies mm-hmm. and our audience doesn't care about those movies, right? Yeah. That's the trick of the business. So yeah, Chocolate Oyster, you know, that was a very strategic move, to be honest with you. And uh, it has paid off and I'll kind of explain why. So. It, it, it absolutely was a film I wanted to tell, something I was passionate about for those in the audience that haven't seen it. Um, it's, it's about two young women in their mid-20s living in Bondi, where I used to live, who were kind of pursuing this dream that pop culture had told them that they could be famous and for doing nothing and that sort of thing, which is what everybody in Bondi thinks. And of course, <laughs> you know, their lives are shit and, and, and kind of go nowhere. And um, it was uh, retroscripted, so we wrote a, um, you know, the outline. We wrote the story in about 10 pages 
10, 12 pages and, you know, we went to film it, it was all up on a whiteboard and myself and the crew know what was happening, but we never told the cast. Um, the way we worked with the cast is we rehearsed the characters' backstories. And then um, the way we decided to approach this, which was, I took a lot of inspiration from, um, uh, um, um, oh, name escapes me, I'm having a mind blank here. <laughs> um, uh, 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 da Larry David, um, Kirby Enthusiasm, uh, the way he works. So we brought the actors in, they, we had rehearsed their backstory, but they had no idea what was happening on the day. So this, the film opens with a 15 minute scene, one single shot, locked camera, with a couple breaking up. But the, the instruction to um, you know, Anna um, was, okay, you're gonna break up with this poor chap. And his instruction was actually, he's trying to get his girlfriend to move in with her. So you know, we, every scene you have to, you know, to, have to create this conflict and had to um, uh, really think of a, you know, a way to make it interesting. And, and, and you know, it's very observational and very funny. And I, I, we made exactly what I wanted to make. And uh, we were very fortunate we got into Sydney Film Festival and um, it was you know, kind of one of the most talked about films there, Centerfold in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald and uh, you know, a huge amount of backlash from the conservative press, which was interesting because my career is making conservative movies like rom-coms and teen films that are all PG rated. So Chocolate Oyster was you know, MA15 plus, uh, you know, has a fair amount of sex in it. It's black and white, it's retroscripted. It's all about people in Bondi. Um, you know, we had, you know, all the kind of liberal left-wing press giving it great reviews, four stars, four and a half stars. And then, you know, the kind of right-wing press, I can't remember who it was, but, you know, one of the Murdoch papers came in and gave it one star and just attacked it, um, which was hard for me because I normally don't direct. So I was like, I was crushed. Um, but we did sold out performances there and then it toured the Eastern Seaboard and, um, you know, kind of did about 20, 25 screenings across the, the country and up and down the Eastern Seaboard sold out pretty much everywhere, except Melbourne. Melbourne, I just didn't like it, but I guess it was very Bondi. <laughs> um, but going back to that strategy, it was very strategic because I knew that I want, even if that, that was going back four or five years ago, I knew that the future of this business was all about series. The writing has been on the wall for five years now. So we want to break into series and getting to series is super, super hard, much harder than film. And one of the things that people always ask when you get into series is who's a showrunner? Like everybody's obsessed with showrunning. Who's a showrunner? Who's a showrunner? I don't know. There's no showrunners in Australia really. And, and the three not. or four that are here. There are a few, but they're like locked up with like Matchbox and you know, whatever. They're locked up with big companies. We can't afford one or get one. So I actually strategically started five years out creating myself as a showrunner. And on Dive Club, which we just finished, which is a, a 12 episode teen series we did for Netflix and Network 10, I'm the showrunner on that. So the way I did that is I did Chocolate Oyster, which I kind of wrote and directed. And yeah, I mean, we, we turned it basically into kind of a festival darling. And again, it, it was hugely attacked by the right-wing press, but we kind of got enough good reviews from the left and, you know, a lot of people in the industry seemed to like it. So we were able to kind of position that. And then with a lot of positioning and our other track record of making teen movies where I was a producer, cut a long story short, after kind of three years of hard work after Chocolate Waster coming out, I was able to position myself and pitch myself to the likes of Netflix and Network 10 and stuff as the creator and showrunner. And because we were doing, you know, YA content, between content versus like adult drama, the honest truth is probably the bar, the barrier to entry was a bit lower, um, but that 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 was my strategy, and you know that's how we got uh, sorry that's how we got Dive off the ground was you know I was a showrunner, and then you know Rihanna and Vandenberg who directed Riptide, we had her as a prime, uh, set of director, and so it was all it was all strategic, and and I think that's certainly something to remember is when we're making decisions, when I'm making decisions on what films we do, it's not a one-off decision. Like we're we're planning out two or three years in advance and strategically deciding what we're doing so that you know we, we are always trying to get somewhere we're always trying to step up, up a level
but you have to you have to start five years out making sacrifices to get to where you want to be in five years that's very interesting for me to hear because I'm currently about to pitch a series. <laughs> so I'm like, mm-hmm, just writing my notes down here. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, well, that's interesting then in terms of like the improvisation with Chocolate Oyster. Um, I mean, obviously you have to be so strategic in the cast that you choose because not every actor can improvise. That's just a fact, you know. Um, so was that a move that was because you wanted to do a film like that or was that because um, you were thinking like in terms of festivals that's a very interesting selling point that they can be like oh this is a film about this but it's basically all improvised so with yeah with chocolate oyster we didn't um plan on it being a festival film i well and truly i'm actually a huge fan of mumblecore films like the puffy chair a lot of Lynn Shelton's films, um, Your Sister's Sister, um, you know, um, Funny Ha Ha. Like, I think there was a really great movement of filmmaking in, in, in the U.S. in the early 2000s, late 90s. And, you know, a lot of great filmmakers, um, you know, um, the Duplass Brothers and so many other, again, Lynn Shelton and so many other great filmmakers came from that movement. And I just love that style of filmmaking. So when we made Chocolate Oyster, it was all actors I knew. It was people I loved working with. It was a very tiny crew. And it was um, like an artistic outlet. And it was something I just wanted to do because I love that genre of film. I had no idea how to perform. Again, I I had this kind of, uh, and to be honest with you, I, to be perfectly honest, I thought I'd have to direct three or four or five films before I could kind of graduate to show running. Mm. Crazy that I only had to do one, do you know what I mean? But keep in mind that I produced like over a dozen movies. So it, you know, kind of swings around routes. But um. You know, there were a number of decisions, but I, I didn't, yes, there were a number of strategic decisions that were playing a part of making that film, but ultimately it was just a story that I was really interested in telling. Again, I was living on Bondi. It was very frustrating. Um, and um, I had these resources to hand and I love the mumblecore genre. What's great with that sort of film is you don't have to raise millions of dollars. You know, you, you, you can actually kind of fund it as you make it kind of thing. And, and of course I was already in the industry, so I was lucky to know the actors and lucky to know places and cinematographers and get cameras and, you know, get discounts left, right and center and beg, borrow and steal and, you know, pay people back over time. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of, I already had kind of that, you know, uh, helping hand, but, um, you know, it, it, there, there was an element of strategy, but there was also it comes back down to at the end of the day, there was no financial motivation. It was made out of love. So love was the number one motivator, but number two below that, before we started filming is I, I we, you know, I remember sitting down with the producer and, uh, cinematographer and some other people and said, okay, we want to make this film. Let's tell the story. It's going to be a really exciting way of making a film. But before we just go make it, let's spend a few weeks talking strategically about what we all want out of this film and how we can get that from the film. So the story was number one and process was kind of up there with this particular film. But but it's definitely worth noting that before we started shooting, we had mapped out a strategy and a strategy was not just what Chocolate Oyster, you know, we, we actually didn't, to be honest with you, have a strategy as to how we were going to get into festivals. That happened organically. But the strategy was why we were making it and what we hope to achieve from it. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point to make and something that um, like I think that I've done subconsciously, but I think would be a really interesting conversation to have with the people that are taking on roles in your film is to have that conversation of like what are we what are we making this for? What are we like getting out of this personally, what is the stepping stone that you're aiming to have because you're working on this film? 
And then also, um, especially with the, the budget sort of stuff, I think that budget and funding a film is a big factor that stops people from filmmaking. However, from personal experience, like years ago, probably in 2016, I made a seven episode web series and I think the budget was like $500. And so people like, was it the most amazing web series? Absolutely not, but it's out there. And so I think people, and as you say, you know, you don't, you don't want to be constantly asking people to work for free and whatnot, but it's about those connections that you do have in the industry and being able to call on them and be like, okay, like what would be a reasonable like question to ask you to get you on this project? Also to that point, and again, looking at something like Chocolate Oyster, and you know, I've also been involved as a producer on some films that I didn't get paid on that were really tiny little films, or you know, certainly a number of you know, we, years ago, EP a film called Skin Deep that was made for not much money, um, Ambrosia, which was Rand Vandenberg's first film, which is a tiny, tiny budget, and you know, those are filmmakers have all gone on now to be now incredibly successful, you know, and, and Rhiannon did Ambrosia, of course, directed six episodes in my series, and Riptide is a huge success for us, and. Um, the filmmakers from Skin Deep, um, you know, have gone on as well. And Monica and Rosie both have amazing careers now. So um, you don't, your first film doesn't have to cost a lot of money. And I would definitely encourage, it, you know, I, I think what's becoming, and look at the Dupress brothers, right? What's becoming more and more apparent is if you want to make it in this industry and you don't have the trust fund and you don't have family connections, a way to do it is to go out and make your own micro budget film um, or web series or short film. Personally, I wouldn't waste my time on a short film. I go straight to the, the the movies, and I would just do what the Duplass brothers did. Like every six months, make a movie and make your movie in five days. You know, if you look at Clerks by Kevin Smith, you know, you can make a good movie in five days, but make it about what you know. And make it simple. Don't make a sci-fi film. Don't make an action film. Make it about the human condition. Make it. And there's lots of great stories here in Australia that are original. And one thing I'm always saying to filmmakers over and over and over again is, don't make it about inner cities lefties. Obviously, that's what I did, but but actually, there's really there's, there's a huge, great landscape in Australia of stories to be told on the right of the spectrum. All the people that vote One Nation, all the people that vote Pauline Hanson, all the people that vote LNP, you know what? They all have really fascinating, interesting stories, and there's a reason that they have a certain view of the world, you know. And all these coal towns, all these sugar mills, they, these are there are stories there that are ripe to be told, and those stories can be made on micro budgets in five or seven days and your your first one might be a write-off you might or maybe it's a hit but if you do that over and over and over again you make two three four of those you know what you're going to get good at it and again the duplass brothers it wasn't like they were suddenly at sundance after making their first you know thing they were out there shooting stuff forever you know and 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 then finally got stuff into sundance and they were doing short films or you know they're doing all sorts of different things and um so that you know it's it, you, the only way you learn and the only way you get good is by doing Yes, a thousand percent. And I love that you said, write what you know. Don't look at, oh, what was successful this year? Oh, that horror film or that sci-fi film? Okay, well, we need to make that. I get so sick of hearing that. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Now, I know you have to go now, so I'm not going to delve into that anymore, but I will link your website below. Um, is there any other social medias that people should follow to keep up to date with what you and your company are doing at the moment? Well, I mean, we, we do have an Instagram page. That's the Steve Jaggy Company on Facebook. I mean, we're notoriously shy. We don't necessarily brag a huge amount. We're in the press a lot at the moment because we're very busy. Um, I think in the last six months, we had three feature films and obviously a Netflix series. But, um, but generally speaking, we are pretty 
low key with what we do. Um, although I guess Instagram is probably where we post the most stuff. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, you know, we're pretty out of the system. Yeah, sure. No problem at all. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining me and we will talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks for having me.